What's good, y'all? My name is Dylan Green, and this is Real Notes, a space dedicated to blurring the cultural and artistic lines between rap and film. I'm here to chop it up with everyone from rappers and producers to journalists and video directors about their relationship to movies and how, if at all, film inspires their craft. My guest this week is writer, activist, and community organizer Clarissa Brooks. We spoke about their love of Gossip Girl, third-person narration, the work of Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston, seeing Grave of the Fireflies in high school, how their work as an organizer influences their work as a writer, the legacy of Odd Future, the baby's public image, and a handful of pieces they've written for outlets from Dead End Hip Hop and DJ Booth to Nylon and The Cut. Come fuck with us. Hi, everybody. What's cracking? Welcome back. This is number 19. Yeah, we're almost at 20. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, this is number 19. Real notes. Um, Dylan, Cinema Sci. I got some names. Those are two of them. This is this is my podcast. Welcome back. I don't know why I'm talking like this right now. Um, <laughs> I got um, I got somebody really fucking dope on here. As we all know, every nigga that comes on here is super tight. But this nigga in particular is the best this is we got clarissa brooks in the place to be writer organizer um all around super awesome dope type person so clarissa thank you for coming on my shit i really really appreciate you oh my goodness thank you for having me i feel like i'm just yeah like getting drinks with an old friend from college so this is easy and see that this is this is this is this is good vibes it's 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 all, it's all about good vibes and important convos to the point where we don't want to throw up after. That's 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 always the goal. As long as everyone calls their Uber home safely, <laughs> or like or, or like manages to walk the like fifteen blocks if they don't want to pay for it, you know? Because like sometimes yeah. we're on that type of time. Yeah, sometimes you just gotta eat a shitty slice of pizza. <laughs> When was the when was the last when was the last time you were up in New York and you went and got yourself some shitty two bros pizza and like walked back to an apartment somewhere? I've only been to New York one time in my life. Oh man, I didn't even I've realize. Been in the South. Yeah, but I've been in the South all of my life. Um, I went one time in 2018, and I literally just stayed in the hotel most of it. Um, it was a cool time. I was actually supposed to go to Brooklyn this weekend, but I canceled it uh, just because like family stuff. I just like, yeah, I need to be closer. Right. Um, but a part of me is like, maybe I do need to just cause some chaos in Brooklyn, pop up on some people. I mean, I, I, I mean, like this is the year to do it, honestly. Like yeah. this is this is the year to do that. Like it just we're like, I don't want to say we're free or that we're in post-COVID because we're obviously not in either of those things. But like, you know, like we're all just like desperate to connect in some way. So, you know, yeah. if you're going to do it, like, yeah, it's just like, yo's been trying to get me to come down to Atlanta. And oh, goodness, yeah, yo, I want that to happen. We'll see if I can make it happen. But, you know, that's just like, we all want to see each other and yeah. chaos is cool sometimes, so. Yeah, I mean, if I went on a rant about my love and hate for Yosefer, it'd be a three-hour conversation. <laughs> text me at random, three o'clock in the morning, trying to go to Edgewood. Like, no, yo, it's 3 a.m. on a Tuesday. <laughs> go to bed. Uh, he, doesn't, he, does, he, doesn't know, he doesn't know what bed is, bro. He doesn't. And every time we hang out, he thinks it's about to be fun. And I'm like, yeah, we can have fun. Also, are you eating a vegetable? Are you sleeping? Yeah. Hmm? He doesn't answer those questions. 
You gotta check in on him sometimes. Yeah, he and I, he and I he and I were running around a bunch in Tulsa, and like he's he's active, man. Like people don't people don't get that about him, but he's active as shit. Literally, and that's my favorite part. Like he really does not tell people what he does, and I genuinely, as his friend, don't know what he does. <laughs> He'd be like, "Yeah," I was like, "Oh, you trying to hang out this weekend?" He's like, "Oh, I'm in LA till next week." When did you <laughs> go? When did whatever but yes very very um gemini capricorn like oh facts <laughs> his birth chart is wild the wildest birth chart i've ever seen oh my <laughs> he's God. like i don't know what this means i was like it's better that you don't yeah yeah because you'd have to start you'd have to stand back and start thinking about some stuff like <laughs> yes <laughs> that's hilarious shout out shout out shout, shout out to our chaotic bestie yo um so let me start this off by asking you what I ask everybody who comes on here. What was the last movie or TV show that you watched that you had a strong opinion about? This is, okay. This is important because one, I just had some roommates who were staying with me. They are thankfully gone. Um, but when they left, they took their PlayStation. So I couldn't watch TV for like the past week. And so I just got an HDMI cord and a remote finally like a few days ago, but I watched the Gossip Girl reboot. How is it? Garbage. I literally, and like, I'm not like, my partner is somebody that feels really deeply about cinema. Like they love movies. They love watching movies and like having, especially like Spike Lee, like they can talk about Spike Lee all day long, but I, I'm not as intent on it. I don't watch movies super, super heavy. I have ones that I love and a lot of it is like just related to like, movies that were important to me growing up, but Gossip Girl was critical to my childhood. So I watched the reboot. It's garbage. The fashion sucks. The storyline sucks. And we were like, okay, so we watched the reboot and then we were like, let's watch the original first pilot just to like make sure we're not gassing how bad this is. Right, right, right. It's just garbage. Like the pilot is so well-constructed, so well-written. They give you the tip, like, it's the perfect, like, um, Tony Morrison says it all the time of like, I'm going to open this book with like giving you everything you need to know in the first five to 10 pages. And your goal as a reader is to stick along and find out what's really happening. And that's what the pilot of Gossip Girl does. Like, it's, yeah, it's the perfect sequence of that. There's conflict, there's tension, it rises, there's beef you don't understand. The pilot of Gossip Girl is confusing, weird, the dynamics are never explained or even made sense of. There's drug use, but like, why are you doing ecstasy at 7.30 PM? <laughs> like, it just, it doesn't make, it's like trying to be Skins and Gossip Girl at the same time. Ooh, it's just, okay. It's, it's bad. Cause Gossip Girl is very like top 1% and Skins is not that at all. Yeah. So it's it's uh clearly I have a passion about it, but it's not a good reboot. That's cold, cause yeah, like, cause 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 like I know a lot of the early conversation was around like the fact that they weren't gonna like like they weren't gonna focus as much on their money and the glamour, which is like, why make another why make why remake Gossip Girl if you're not gonna do that? Cause like that's the whole point of the shit. Right, and also I think I think that choice was around like it's 2021, like the actual one percent don't look like they're the 1%. Uh, right. Because they know that we're moving towards a more like 
more anti-capitalist, like you gonna get robbed if you actually look like Blair Waldorf, right? Oh, facts, yeah. But even in the reboot, you don't actually get that sense. It's just kind of like the things that you're, that they're, it's kind of like anytime I get edits back and an editor's like, you need to explain this. Like you're assuming the reader knows what you're talking about and they don't. Um, and a lot of the reboot really feels like they expect us to know what they're talking about. And we don't have that context because it's a completely different world. Um, yeah, it's just bad. Damn. So real quick before we move on, talk to me a little bit about like your relationship with Gossip Girl and like when you first saw it and like what effect it's had on you and like with your, just with your like general like movie TV watching experience. Yeah, so I mean, so I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. I literally, the most exciting part of my childhood was like, my mom was like, if you get straight A's, I'll get you cable TV. That never happened, never. Um, And that's just on like growing up poor, right? We just like didn't have that access. So a lot of the TV I watched was very black growing up. And then in like elementary school, so like Jamie Foxx show, I was heavy on UPN. Um, Growing up a little bit more and also my mom would just send me to Barnes and Nobles for fun. Um, so I would be reading Pretty Little Liars, Gossip Girl, those type of like teen series um, pretty often as a kid. So once the TV shows came out, they were really central to my understanding of femininity and beauty um, and a lot of shit I had to unpack later. But Gossip Girl was critical because it was the first time where I understood um, third person narrator. And I really, really love third person narration and anything like mm-hmm. um being in English classes growing up I'd always be like if I can write something in third person I want to so Gossip Girl was the perfect place to be like interesting here's an outside voice who's deciding everything um I also grew up on Veronica Mars like Kristen Bell her politics aside we stand her over here um so Veronica Mars was important hearing her on Gossip Girl, I was like, this is it for me. Um, and also I think there was just a level of when you're a tween, 12, 13 year old and you're watching a bunch of grown white women do drugs and be mean to each other. You're just like, I wanna be grown. I wanna be fighting with my bestie on the stairs of some library, um, which is not realistic to my life, but um, it really did help me understand what the mass culture's ideas of femininity were um, in a way that even though I know it's actually not beneficial to me, um, there's small pockets that I still really love about Gossip Girl um, that I think are, yeah, still really central to how we understand womanhood, even if we try to act like we don't on the feministic. That's that's so much that you just said right there. And I want, no, no, it's all good. I just wanted to start with the fact that like, that was kind of my relationship with Bad Girls Club because like my sister and I would watch Bad Girls Club when like season four was my favorite of, and 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 like and like I didn't really have much of a relationship with Gossip Girl like that I had a lot of friends who did but I but I didn't watch it like that but like Gossip but um Bad Girls Club was where I was like okay I get this now like this is like this is me watching everything that you just said and being like I'm here for the mess like this is that, that was when I was like just fully embraced like I love this mess. Like, (laughs) and it's wild because, like, I got on Bad Girls Club in college, but actually, Bad Girls Club made much more sense to my reality as a kid than Gossip Uh Girl. 
but Gossip Girl was like the complete opposite of what I was living. So I was like, this, this works. But anytime I watch Bad Girls Club, I'm like, I don't think you can end an episode and be like, who doesn't want to fight? Like, <laughs> I'm ready to go. Like, it's, it's such a good show. I mean, not the ethics of it, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You it know, like, it, it, it's just like elicits a really specific mood. Like you're, you're like, like it, it's, it's like one of three moods. You're either going to be ready to fight. You're going to be ready to party or you're going to be ready to fuck like one of those three things. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's wild. Like now that I'm getting a bit older, I always am thinking about like, damn, the producers of this show really did what they needed to do. Like, as I watch more like reality TV, like, and you can notice like the music being put in the clips, the cuts they're putting in. And now I'm just right. like, Okay, I, I I see what y'all are doing to listen an emotion out of me, and it's working. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nah. Like yeah. Like you can see the puppet strings, but it's like fuck it. You know? Like it's you, you're, you're just here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. On some Doctor Manhattan shit. Mm-hmm. Um. But like, but there's another bit I wanted to touch on. You talked about the the, the third person narration, which is something that like a lot of people consider narration to be taboo in like TV and film. I don't necessarily like. I'm a I'm a proponent of like if you manage to make it work, you can do anything. I don't care what it is. And, mm. but, but, but like, it's really, there's just like this stigma that like narr- people feel like narration is lazy and people feel like it's uh, a, like, like, I don't necessarily agree with that, but like the, the, the general consensus is like, it's lazy and people only use it because they can't figure out how to tell a good story or whatever mm. the fuck. So like, talk to me about what that narration kind of showed you. And like, if you could, well, this might be a bit of a stretch, but like, is there like some sort of connection to the way that you write through that fascination with third person narration? Yeah, I think some of my favorite books growing up involved a narrator and maybe not even, well, third person narration being Gossip Girl, but also just like internal dialogue felt right. really important in books. Like even like Junie B. Jones, like you are hearing her world and also she's telling you what she's thinking. Um, and the queen of that, Toni Morrison. Yeah, Morrison is the queen of a internal dialogue um, and narration and goes between those seamlessly all the time um, and in terrifying ways. Like when I read Toni Morrison's sentences, I'm just like, let's fight. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> um, but with Gossip Girl, something that I always thought was critical and maybe it is like justice oriented was like, what's your side of the story, the other person's side of the story, and like the truth that's in the middle. And I think for me, that narration piece does that. Um, Even with Gossip Girl, she doesn't actually like really tell the truth, but she says the things that the characters are afraid to say or deal with um, and really moves the, and really moves the dialogue um, in a way that the characters aren't really doing or just that they're just like not as aware of like even watching the pilot um gossip girl is like asking questions like what is serena back for why is she hanging out with nate um very small things that like you don't catch um and it's funny because i didn't know that dan humphreys was gossip girl until recently like a few years ago Mm. but now that i watch the pilot i'm just like dude is everywhere (laughs) he's coming home late He's like, he's literally everywhere. And I did not catch that until I watched the pilot uh, yesterday. But yeah, I think narration and internal dialogue are really important. Um, And it also frames how I write. I know there've been, um, I wrote an investigative piece on Alexis Crawford 
and the original copy I turned in is narration, reporting, <laughs> narration, <laughs> reporting. And my editor was like, wow, this is beautiful. Not what I've asked for, um, but beautiful. <laughs> and so um, she was like, I want you to keep the narration copy because it's, it's beautiful stuff. But, you know, it was a, a lesson in investigative reporting where it's like, you, you can't have that. You actually have to let your reporting lead the story. Um, and your reporting has to be strong enough to do that work by itself. Um, so that's a skill I'm always kind of unlearning with like more hard journalism stuff because hard journalism just is a little dry for me. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel it. And I always want to add a elusive, descriptive narration. Um, and editors are like, wow, thank you for none of this. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's still pretty critical in how I understand how I want to tell stories still. Right. You, you know who else is incredible at that? Zora Neale Hurston. She's incredible yeah. at that too. Like I was, um, I just, uh, pretty recently I read this big collection of like lost short stories that she wrote about her time in New York. And mm. like, she's so incredible at putting you into a character's head, like through that narration. And like, I'm looking at these stories and I'm like, this wouldn't make sense if we didn't know what was going on in this person's head, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. and, you know, like, I think it's, I think it's dip, like, I guess it's kind of different between film and TV and literature, the way narration works, but like, I don't, but like, I don't necessarily feel it's right to just say straight out, like, oh, it's just lazy. Like it can be done lazy, but I don't yeah. think like the act of utilizing narration is inherently lazy. Like, I think that's yeah. kind of reductive. Yeah. Ooh, I was just thinking about another, like cinema wise. Um, my favorite movie that me and my best friend Christine watch is Gone Girl. Mm. Another beautiful piece of narration um, where her internal, and also like where you actually, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if it's different, but in the movie itself, the actual break starts in the middle of the movie. Right, yeah. You actually don't get the narration until we catch her um, running away from the house. Yep. And and changing her identity and shit. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And that felt Great like movie. a really critical narration because we're actually unsure. And we're also like kind of, in, as the author does, like gives us these points of like, mm, he's not that great of a husband. He's actually kind of shit. Yeah. And not actually a villain, but he's just unaware, selfish, checked out. He's a dope. Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah, he's, he's a completely dope. Un, completely unaware. And to where like, even when I finished the movie the first time, I wasn't clear if he hit her or not still. Right, and yeah. I really thought about it. And I was like, but that, I mean, I think that is one of my favorite parts with narration is like, because you're being led a certain way, you also have to take the responsibility as the person watching it or reading it to be like, do I trust this narration? And by the right. end of it, you actually realize that wasn't the full truth of what happened. Right, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, like um, Amy, Amy in a sense is kind of like an unreliable narrator because she's, okay. because she's as, I mean, like as, like as, as much as we're as much as we're brought to sympathize with her and like as mm -hmm. much sympathy as I feel like she deserves to an extent, obviously. Like, yeah. like I didn't I never really thought about the fact that like she's kind of like I I like I guess I just never thought about the narration in the sense that like she's kind of just an unreliable narrator. And yeah. like 
and like that and like that movie it's, it's really interesting you bring that up because that movie is so built on performance like ben affleck is performing what he thinks is like the good husband and he's doing shit on the side amy is a full-on sociopath and like performing everything and like of course that comes down to like that comes down to what society puts on her as a woman like the fact that she has to perform like she mentions that and she mentions that in the in the narration when she's doing the thing like Mm -hmm. Like, it's just about what society imposes on women for them to perform like this. It's all about these different masks that we put on and these different acts that we put on in front of people, depending on who we, it's just like, that's, and like that wouldn't come through without the narration. Like, yeah, because without it, she would just be a woman that gets kidnapped by her, like unstable ex. Yeah. And also, and also that whole section of the movie would just be like, just like her getting ready with like no dialogue underneath it. And that's yeah. like, that could be fire sometimes, but not like, like the, the, like the narration helps there. It, it, it yeah. helps there. It feels yeah. really crucial. Um, I think the last movie I want to mention is, is it The Lost Bones? It's about a white girl who gets killed. Mm, the Lovely Bones? The Lovely Bones, absolutely. Clearly I have a thing for white women getting killed. but the lovely bones was another damn i really do have a thing for white women dying in narration because i was also going to say um my sister's keeper was one of my favorite books growing up wow jody Jody pacolt knows how to write a fucking book um that woman knows how to give you narration and also from different characters perspectives um that I think it's one of my favorite ways of writing a book of like each chapter is one, a different font, a different character, but she's still keeping the timeline. Um, right. Yeah. Clearly, you know, I have a problem with narration. <laughs> so when I, so when I do put out a book and it's narrated, like, don't, this is your warning. Yeah. No, no, no. I won't say shit. I can't, I can't promise. I can't promise anybody else, but I won't say shit about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, what's the, so like, what's the first movie experience you can remember having? Like, it could be at the theater. It could be at your cousin's house. It could be like in a mall watching a movie on a TV or something. Like, what's the first movie experience you remember having? I think a lot of it is influenced by my mom. Um, my mom really made it really clear to me that like there were certain movies that really mattered to her and that was The King and I, uh-huh. Sound of Music, and The Preacher's Wife. Oh, wow. That's a really, that, that's a really interesting trifecta. Wow. Right, right. Um, and it covers a lot, but um, I think those are really important to me just because The Preacher's Wife is unstoppable. Like Whitney Houston... Denzel Washington, it's just disrespectful how how good that soundtrack is. Um, yeah, like so good. Um, that was a big part of my childhood too. I love that movie. Yeah, and it's like, and I don't like Christmas as a holiday, but I love I love The Preacher's Wife. Like that is the one movie I will watch. Um, so those are really critical to me watching growing up. Um, the Sound of Music because my mom really loves musicals, King and I as well. Um, and I still hold really dear to that. Also, like every Easter, my mom would watch um, the Moses replay that happens on ABC. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Damn, um, so it was like four hours long. Right, and I would watch it every single Easter, acting as if I didn't know what would happen. Um, and yeah, I think in-person, like cinema things, 
the first movie premiere that I went to with like my family and friends was, I think you got served. Ooh. Wow, you're that's a good first one, honestly. Like yeah. that's such and a like opening weekend. Like it was like a huge deal to us. Um, and then from there, I you know, got into middle school, got super heavy into Harry Potter. So a lot of my really big cinema moments are going to go see Harry Potter. Um, I remember watching part two of the Deathly Hallows, like on the seats of the cinema stairs because the theater was so packed. Damn. We were like, like just me and my white friends were like, we refuse to leave. (laughs) And we just like sat on the stairs in the dark. um, watching it. So a lot of it's, a lot of it's around series and movies. Um, I don't, I'm not a scary movie person. I get it. Scary enough. Um, I saw Hereditary and I saw Midsommar. Uh, wow. So to, so to not be a horror movie person and see those two, what was that like? I had nightmares for weeks. Um, <laughs> and I was, wow. and there's, there's a reason why my mom didn't let me watch scary movies. One, um, because like people in my family also are deep into spirituality. Um, right. And I don't think I'm as heavy into it, but like, I don't think none of that's not possible. So as a kid, I didn't have that filter of this is fake. Um, so I definitely like was a kid that was like, gotta keep the lights on when I go to sleep. Um, and I don't think I am that way still, but I'm just like, I'm not trying to mess with no nothing. So when I, I saw Hereditary on accident because my roommates at the time were watching it. Terrible idea. Um, mm. I watched Midsommar because people told me it was a thriller. It's not. They lied. <laughs> they lied um, Straight cap. Oh my God. Like completely lied to me. But I also am somebody that just like really loves different ways of doing a genre. Um, so to see Midsommar and to see the way that it's shot and filmed and just the lighting of it was really cool, but I also couldn't sleep. Like I saw Hereditary and my, um, uh, my part of my partner's room is like in an attic. And I was like, I can't go up here. Like we saw Hereditary. I'm not going up here. I think I'm, fuck. Um, right. But yeah, so scary movies are not for me. I do love thrillers. I do love like the Gone Girl types, like really a lot of like more true crime type stuff. But I saw Freddy versus Jason when I was a little kid and still haunts me. So you saw <laughs> you saw Kelly Rowland get smacked into a tree by Jason right. and shit. Like. And there was also so much sex in that. I was like, I think yeah. as a kid, I was like, why is there so much sex in this scary movie? Like who is enjoying this? <laughs> I was like, who is who wants sex in their scary movie? I mean, I mean, a lot of people do. It's kind of, it's kind of like a staple. Yeah, like it's, 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 it like, like I don't know why it happened, but I feel like, like, may, maybe it didn't start with Friday the Thirteenth, but I think yeah. that's when people started to notice it, like yeah. because the, because then Scream happens, and Scream yeah. is like they're just like if you have sex in them, if you have sex in a scary movie, you will die, period, yeah. and like. And like it just became like this like accepted like there's gonna be there's gonna be sex in your horror movie like especially your slasher horror movie like. yeah yeah uh, which goes into a whole thing about other things but um, right yeah but yeah but those are the movies that are really critical to me and I will say I wasn't I think as I got a bit older I wasn't as heavy into movies I really am somebody that will like go to the same films over and over again I have no problem rewatching something um, yeah. but I definitely am a child of 
the internet and also like UPN, all of the like black sitcoms that were happening in the early like 2000s. Uh, Cause that's what I like grew up on. Well, um, before we move on, I was just thinking about this. I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but you do, you ever watch a show called Wayne Head before? It was an animated show about um, a black kid with a club foot. It aired on Cartoon Network for like a handful of years and it had a crazy good theme song. I remember the image of this, but I never watched it. Man. Oh yeah, I definitely remember this. <laughs> it's definitely. like, yeah. it's just one of those things. It's just like buried in the back of my head. Like, I think that was probably one of the earliest the earliest examples I could think of, of like a, of like seeing a black character in a cartoon and I'm, and, and me being like, huh, that's pretty cool. Like that. And like the, the, the black kid on recess, like mm-hmm. just being like, wow, like it's tight. It's cool seeing that. And yeah. um, I don't know why I thought about that because it has nothing to do with UPN, but shout out I, to UPN because the programming yeah. was extra good. So good. Um, there's also like a lot of history on like the, the company and stuff and why the shows left, but Wayne's head it makes me think about um I don't know whoever is going to interview Andre 2000 I don't know if it's possible but I will give him money to make class of 3000 oh man yeah just just like one more season my I just need one more season of class 3000 the music is so good and I wasn't even like around to watch it but it's like an old partner of mine mentioned it to me and I started watching it and I was like this is too good. Like this man is too, too talented. Like we need this to come back. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about unstoppable, like Andre 3000 has done it all. And yeah, class of 3000 was class of 3000 was a lot of fun. I haven't watched it since it first aired, but I remember loving it. And like the music was always so good and like, damn. It's gotta be nah. Yo, Dre, if you're listening, Come, come 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 talk to me <laughs> we'll make we'll make this start, happen we will start the petition just give us one last season please Bad. oh um so uh so i guess like you know like as like as you're growing up with upn which was like growing up with upn and and all the movies that you just mentioned like was there like is there a specific movie or like a specific show or whatever that like made you fall in love with cinema as like a concept and be like this is like like was there anything that took you beyond just like watching it as a person and like it like appreciating it as art yeah damn we're about to make a real deep pivot here um so in charlotte there's like magnet schools so they have like arts programs language programs i was in the language program um i like studied spanish for like 12 years the whole thing um but (laughs) At my middle school, they had Spanish, French, German, Japanese, and Mandarin. And I took Japanese class for three years. I can barely understand any of it still. But the first film that made me actually think really critically about cinema was in my Japanese class. Of course, I had a white Japanese teacher, um, a white man with an obsession. Um, But we watched... Grave of Fireflies. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> it is the darkest anime movie. I, I'm not someone that cries at movies at all. I'm not a crier in general, but specifically with movies, I'm the last person that's going to cry. 
I remember weeping when I saw Grandpa Fireflies. Cause I was like, one, this is the darkest film about World War II I've ever seen. <laughs> and two, yep. like, it doesn't let up. It doesn't get better <laughs> at all. <laughs> it ends darkly, it begins dark. Um, but it was the first time that I felt like I was getting like a really honest um, first person experience of Japanese wartime that wasn't coming through like a US filter and made me actually think about like what my like reality as a black person in the US was to other countries. Um, and also it's just a gorgeous movie. It's just a gorgeous anime. Um, and I think from there, I didn't get into anime from there but it was the first time where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm watching things and feeling really intensely about how I understand like the music and the lighting um, and the storytelling. Cause I think Grave of Firefly starts with him like in the subway and it ends with him in the subway too um, yeah. after his sister passes. So yeah, it was again, one of those things where the storytelling really kind of comes full circle in a way that you, you think there's a light, but like it, it doesn't actually, it, it ends on a very like somber note of like, this is just this person's story um, mm -hmm. in a way that I just thought was really, really honest as like a, 12 year old <laughs> yeah man like studio like, you know like first and foremost studio ghibli is just like they're like they're gonna knock it out of the park every time that one wasn't hayao miyazaki but it was somebody else within his camp who did that and like it's just it's like it's a really beautifully done movie but it, like you said it's it's like horrifyingly sad like that shit really like like, I, I, like it honestly fucks me up to this day like <laughs> like just yeah just like him just like watching watching uh the older brother just like be with his kid brother when he died nah like, when i tell you <laughs> when i think back on it it really is not an age-appropriate movie to show middle schoolers because when i tell you we were wrecked as a class <laughs> like six to eighth graders we all left crying and my yeah. teacher of course this very obsessed white man was like all right and that's the reality of world war ii <laughs> um it was honest, but like, it is one of the darkest movies I've ever seen. And I'm always like, you're trying to cry. It's right there. Yeah, yeah, you know, throwing Grave of the Fireflies. And like, and like that movie is so important to not just people's understanding of Japan in the World War II era, but like to like the history of anime in particular, because like yeah. anime arose from the ashes of everything that happened in World War II. Like the industry kind of started like, oh, I wish I could remember the full story off top, but like the history of anime really like started to kick into high gear once World War II happened and Japan was starting to rebuild itself after the bombs dropped. Um, and like, and, and, and like a lot of the, uh, um, a lot of its earlier, from what I understand, a lot of its earlier uh, technology driven stuff was really like, like a, like a lot of it was based in the fantasy of like, oh, this is what we want right now, but we don't have that because we have like next to nothing. Yeah. And um, I guess uh, this is the first time I'm gonna say this. I guess I'm gonna post a link to, a, uh, to this really great piece that explains this history in a much better way than I can. But um, I think Grave of the Fireflies is such an explicit like connection to that, or, 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 or maybe not a connection to it, but like a springboard to that, to, to like understanding, to, to it, or, or, or to at least like 
piquing the curiosity of like oh where did this come from like it kind of started here so like 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 i guess it's just like serendipity to see that come around on top of it being just like a sad thing that you and your homegirls are crying about after you watch it in school like yeah i mean and we didn't get the we got a little bit of the anime context and we watched a lot of anime in that class um it's still one of my favorite classes from middle school but um and like we watched totoro all those things um and the tones are just so different like you can see what houses are making certain things because um you can out you can also like feel when it's made for a u.s audience and when it's not oh um, yeah and grab the fireflies is not for the u.s audience but yeah before we move on i was just reading this piece that i was talking about and uh there's so like so like just like a little bit more context about like japan and animation during the world war ii era like there was a. Uh, um, there was a lot of propaganda animation going on at the time, but of course, like the war kind of the, the war kind of decimated the animation industry. And a lot of people felt that like people weren't investing money in, into, into it the way it needed to be. And then, uh, you know, you know, like there were still people making animation, but it was like just a lot more scarce. And then uh, Astro Boy happened in the I want to say like. Yeah, like the early 60s and Astro Boy, like especially with the whole technological aspect, like that was kind of that was kind of like a really big moment for that industry. And like Astro Boy kind of pushed this general understanding of what the West considers anime to be. And yeah, I just think all that's really interesting, especially when you consider like what Grave of the Fireflies is about, like as kind of being like the prelude to that. So, yeah, I think yeah. that's tight. Yeah. Um. So, uh, so let's go in a slightly different direction. When did you first fall in love with music growing up? Like while all of this is happening? Mm -hmm. um, I think that happened on Tumblr. Mm. Yeah, it happened on Tumblr. And I'll say namely with like certain artists. I mean, am I a politically is in a different place yep. now. But MIA in high school for me was so critical to really my understanding of like internationalism and like the diaspora. Uh, and she wasn't the only person, like I was listening to Cakes Aquila. Um, Shout out to Cakes, and, Jersey's finest. Um, Leaf as well. Um, listening to Skepta, like I was like, Tumblr was the place where I was able to listen outside of the U.S. South um, in a way that felt like just like new and fresh to me. Um, and I kind of like in a weird way, kind of worked my way backwards, like kind of ran through like what artists in the U in the U.K. were listening to and playing and then kind of made my way back to New York hip hop and the origins of that. So when a lot of times when people ask me like my top five or like my feelings on like jay-z and nas i'm just like you're asking a southern kid who was born in 95 about nas and i just i don't have the context for you and also like right. i respect the history i know the history but also like i'm not about to debate with you about nas and jay-z i'm just not i just don't have it for you um but yeah i would say tumblr is a place where i like grew that love that's when i started like <laughs> copying songs converting them on like YouTube converters, adding them to my Apple Music history playlist. Um, and I will say Tumblr was a place where I was like, I definitely want to be a DJ. Mm. Right, there was this, um, 
like a DJ and a dancer. So I was really, really deep into like hip hop dance. I used to intern at this um, place called Collective Youth in Charlotte run by Andrea, um, ooh, Andrea Lewis. No, not Andrea Lewis, I'm forgetting her last name, but an icon in like hip hop choreography. Um, and yeah, it was like, I'm gonna be a DJ or a dancer. I realized being a DJ is super expensive. Um, also realized being a dancer is super expensive. So I was like, something's gotta give, what's in the middle space where I can talk my shit. And then I found writing. Um, because being a DJ was like yeah just like too much equipment but like being a writer I was able to like listen to music and give my opinion um and yeah that's how I started at Dead and Hip Hop right yeah I'm yeah I'm, I'm happy you already went there because I was going to ask when you decided that you wanted to be a writer like was there like was there like a specific song or like a specific moment where you were like I'm a right now like do you have yeah. one of those I I didn't start off wanting to be a music writer. I actually started off, um, ooh, just a weird kid my mother had. I'm just thinking about it. Um, I wanted to be a lot of things growing up, right? Like I wanted to also be a fashion designer um, really badly. Arts was like the only way for me, but I got really deep into fashion writing. Um, I still have like every Vogue from like 2012 to 2015. Wow. Yeah super deep into fashion writing. So at some point I still want to get there, but I also know fashion writing is so latest and expensive, um, which is why I kind of merged onto music writing. But actually the first thing that I was like, I need to write about this was, what is my first byline? I don't know if I remember. The first thing I can remember writing, not writing about, but like writing and getting a response on was actually telephone. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I wrote a review of Telephone for Dead End Hip Hop um, and No Name because I gave it like a B minus. <laughs> and No Name <laughs> replied and was like, a B minus? And I was like, um, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thankfully, that storyline has grown from there. But right. <laughs> yeah, that was the first time I ever got any artist response from anything I ever wrote. So I was just, super hype, super excited to like even get that um, very fangirl type of way. But yeah, Telephone was the first thing I was like, I'm proud that I wrote this and really spent my time with it. Um, I'm gonna go see what my first piece was though, cause that could be. Yeah, no, I'm curious now. And, and, and yeah, like while we're here, like, yeah, obviously like you, um, like you just did the No Name Books, um, the stream over the weekend, which I only got to see part of. But, um, you know, like y'all held it down, like shout out to you and shout out to everything that No Name has been doing with with the book club. Like I have Asada Shakur's autobiography like right here that I haven't started, like specifically because of that, because I have like five other books I'm reading right now. But mm -hmm. yeah, no, like shout out, shout out to shout out to No Name and everything she and her organizations have been up to because it's been super dope. Also, she's. Um, she, I. I want a whole No Name and Madlib album. I don't know if anybody's talked about this yet, but I want that. I don't know if she wants it. I don't know if he wants it. I want that. <laughs> People want it. Um, okay, I checked my Contently page, which is not completely there, but I wrote my first music thing. I wrote about the 2017 XXL cover. Right. And then I wrote about... Um, the damn album by Kendrick. Mm -hmm. 
those are like the most, I think those are the last like denim pieces I have that are available. But yeah, 2017 XXL cover and Kendrick were like the first Mm. public pieces I have. Got you. So, um, so also like, I, so like, of course you don't just write about music, you write about all sorts of different things, but you also, you're also a community organizer and you've been doing that for years. So like, when did you, so like, when did that aspect of, when did that aspect start to first come into your life? Like what really, what really put you in the space of wanting to work as a community organizer? Yeah. So I was writing before becoming an organizer. I was doing that in high school. Um, there's like a profile of me by the Charlotte Mecklenburg school system. It's like student journalist. Um, I, the outfit I have on in that picture is wild, but um, yeah, have always been writing for a long time. I got to college and got into organizing through the organization I was a part of at the time called AUC Shut It Down. Um, and it kind of just went on from there. And really by accident, it was more like the things that were happening on campus weren't being reported on. And I was really just like, somebody's got to do it. I write, I need to find a way to do it. Um, and and I, I truly like tell like my origin story of getting into freelance writing. Um, because one, I know luck is a huge part of like how things happen. Um, and also to say like, when people are like, I, I want you to mentor me and I want you to this, I'm just like, one, a part of this story is luck. And two, the other part is like, a deep knowledge and want to be a better writer that like nobody made me do. Like I really take the time to really do that work on my own. Um, but all that to say, I emailed Allison Maloney, who was like, I want to say one of the people that critically shifted Team Vogue's political coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, like you can't talk about Team Vogue becoming political without Allison. Um, but I sent her a pitch. And she replied. And I literally remember like where I was going on campus. I was a sophomore. Um, like what I was doing when she replied and me being like, fuck. <laughs> I gotta, and that's that's genuinely still my response to when editors reply to me for things that like I know I gotta do. I'm just like, all right, bitch, you, you said you're gonna do it, so now you gotta do it. Um Yeah. <laughs> and it's always a little like exciting but like really like you, you got to prove yourself and I, I hold myself to really high standard with my writing so um thankfully my first edits with her were not hard she was like this is pretty solid um and as a sophomore in college I was hype about that so that's really where my organizing and writing started to merge um and my work as a paid organizer happened a little bit more after college towards the last couple of years um working for like color of change and stuff but yeah, that's kind of really how it started. And from there, I've kind of been able to meet other journalists um, who call themselves movement journalists who like, yeah, hold a particular politic that I'm really proud to to be a part of. Yeah, that's incredible, honestly, because like, you know, it's like you've been like you're one of a handful of writers I know who have like, I mean, like you, 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 you clearly have like the thing that you're into, like you have your beat, but you've kind of just been all over the place. Like you've written, like you've written about, you've written about music, you've written about organizing, you've written about HBCUs, you've written about so many different things in so many different ways. And like, that's like, I just think that's something that really needs to be noted. Cause it's, you know, like, it, you know, like it's hard enough writing about one kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But like, you, you know, like it's for you, it's just like you do op-eds, you do, you do like hard news reporting when you need to, like, 
and and then like you mix it in with the narration sometimes like it's it's like that's tough you know and uh that's just yeah i just think that's dope and you managed to like you've managed to turn it into something really really like sustaining and like you've got this following and like you're and, 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 and like not even the fact that you just have a following like you're really like you're very genuine in what you do and mm-hmm. that comes through in your writing and the work you do so yeah I I think that's like always the goal with my work and I will say a lot of the like wide range of coverage is I'm not even going to say on accident but like even like in talking about the nuances of like of how I grew up and how we all understand cinema and music like if somebody said just write about black music it just wouldn't make sense because my understanding of music um covers so many grounds and even like liberation politics and all those things so um yeah I think about like the Haley Williams coverage I've done and for a lot of people they're just like that's pretty left field but also like the geopolitical world I live in in the south growing up as a like poor black kid but going to like magnet programs with upper middle class white people and brown people this is not that much of a stretch for me um yeah but it's like black people in context is a lot more complicated than the white imagination you know it's like you wouldn't listen to this and it's like you don't know that (laughs) right and also like my reality is that I was bust with like all black and brown kids and we were all listening to Paramore all listening to Green Day um Mm -hmm. and I was listening to that with the black kids too right like this is like and I think Hanif actually talks about this a lot more of code switching and like the different realities you have to be in as a black person in different spaces Um, and that just feels like really resonant to how I grew up um, I grew up around a lot of white kids, but my family is like, yeah, completely different. Like all dark skin folks, all like geniuses on Southern rap and culture. Um, and I, I grew up in both places. So I have an appreciation for both of those things, but that doesn't make one of those experiences any less than the other for me. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I relate a hundred percent because I grew up the same way, you know, like, you know, you know, like we, we, you know, like we were all listening to Paramore and Green Day. I was playing Tony Hawk games and getting into all of that music. Like that's how I first, like, that was some of my first exposure to like metal and like, I'm still really into metal now. Like I really got into metal when I was in college, like through like, it, it, through like older bands like Meshuggah and you know like got into like prog rock like Coheed and fucking like Animals as Leaders and all that shit and um you know like you know like we like we both grew up in we, we, we both grew up at a time and in areas where we know that like black people listen to everything like yeah. like 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 I know some of the hoodest people you could possibly imagine who are banging Paramore and Green Day like it's big facts you know like like we're not a monolith in that way like like of course like of course like pretty much every black person I know loves rap but there's more there's always more to it than that like me like me and all my homeboys were listening to we were listening to Lupe and Kanye but we were also listening to like we were also listening to Green Day and Tool and like all that stuff and like that and like that exists. And that's why you getting to interview Haley Williams was such a big moment because I could tell that you were the exact same way. And I was like, damn, like I see you out here, like really 
putting on for that because like that type of person has always existed it didn't just happen with you you know like and of course you know that and I'm not like telling you that but like that's just that's just dope I just loved to see that it's just yeah. yeah and I feel like um I feel like Hanif is like one of the OGs that really led that charge like I think Hanif is one of the first people I saw like doing hip-hop coverage doing rock coverage doing pop coverage um because I was even thinking about like my mom has such a wide range of music music and cinema interests like one of my mom's favorite movies um she's got a weird j-lo fascination but um have you seen made in manhattan of course i have i knew you were oh, gonna say I... made in manhattan i knew you were gonna say god damn it my mom loves herself uh made to riches story um which i get like she also loves like pretty woman all that stuff which is more like there, there there's a class thing in there um, oh totally so yeah mother being like when will a white man lift me from the bonds of poverty <laughs> um but yeah like my mom has such a wide interest of movies and cinema um the bodyguard too my mom loves the bodyguard man Oof. um but yeah like even I'm, I'm always trying to think about like how can I also give that graciousness to the black women and like older black women in my life who like also have varied interests who were like like my the first time I heard Esperanza Spalding was in my aunt's like like cherry red escalade while she was smoking black and miles like you know like that's my experience of, of Esperanza Spalding um and I wasn't hearing that with white people but my aunt right. loves loves Esperanza loves herself from Indiari um and that really got me into like the the neo soul growing up right yeah you know yeah you know like my parents um my relationship with my parents families are kind of the same like my mom's white so like so like, so like she's playing a whole bunch of other shit that I might not necessarily, like she and her family are playing things that I might not necessarily hear with my dad and his family. Mm -hmm. And like, but like there's, but like there were also a lot of weird overlaps. Cause like <laughs> my mom was really into LL Cool J, like head sprung mm -hmm. era LL Cool J. Uh -huh. Like, like the early to mid two thousands, like, like, I don't know why, but like she <laughs> loved that and like, um uh the brief the brief stretch shake remix with diddy on it and uh -huh. but then she was also like she was also really big on sting and aerosmith mm -hmm. and like all of that stuff mm -hmm. but um and then of course my dad was really into like doo-wop and he was like he he kind of prides himself on being a little like modern with everything he does. Like, like, like at the time he was really big on destiny's child and, mm, and the yeah. brandies never say never and Eric Benet, but he was also like, he was just, he's just always tapped in when it comes to yeah. that shit, which is really cool. And, yeah. uh, um, you know, and, and, and like, of course, like my aunts and uncles also put me onto a whole, and, and like my cousins too, you know, like, you know, it, it, I mean, like my cousin Jarell and I used to just like run through, all different types of music. He used to get mad at how much I played Doom when I first discovered Doom. Shout out to Jarrell. I'm sure he's still mad about that shit today. But like, I would just like play, like when I discovered Doom, I would just do nothing. But he'd be like, nigga, you playing this shit again? And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm sorry, bro. Like, <laughs> I can't help it. I think my um, my favorite thing is like hearing other music writers talk about how they listen to music. Like I'm somebody that's like, I will, if I like a song, I'll run it all day on repeat until I know all the words, but a lot of artists, are, a lot of writers I know, like, will listen to a full album and then just replay it or like go, mm -hmm. buy, or they'll like go to the songs that they want to listen to with features, like when they're writing or whatever, but I'm definitely like a, I'm going to run this song, like um, Isaiah Rashad's new song that came out, 
come on. I probably ran that for a full 24 hours. My partner was like, we get it. And I was like, there's a three, six mafia feature, like sample on here. I'm, I'm running it. Like, come on. <laughs> you, can't, you can't stop me. Um, but yeah. And also just like how we collect like those stories and nuances. Um, I did want to say, just cause I don't want to give my mother too much credit here. Um, my mother does not like Beyonce. Wow. Why? It's a lot of, you know, misogyny in there, but mm. <laughs> like my mom had this thing growing up where she was like, Beyonce can't read. And I was like, Beyonce I can't read? Hell. Yeah. It was Whoa. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those random conspiracy theories that like, because Beyonce didn't graduate high school, my mom was like, Beyonce can't read. Pure jealousy. Mm. But thankfully the internet brought me to Beyonce and I got my common sense about myself. Um, but yeah, I do think it's one of those things where like, there are certain artists with my family that I like that weren't played that I had the pleasure of like discovering on my own time once I got mm -hmm. a little bit older. And that's, and, and, and like, that's the beautiful thing about music discovery, because you have the stuff that your parents are playing, but then you go off on your own. Cause like, cause like, cause like my parents weren't playing three inches of blood. My parents mm -hmm. weren't playing, my parents weren't playing three, six, you know, right. like my parents weren't playing, um, what else? My parents weren't playing Kanye West at the time. My dad loves flashing lights now, which is the funniest thing to me. But like, but you know, like, like that's kind of looking back on it. That's like what, that's what fuels our yeah. music discovery, everything, right? Like we, like we have that foundation that our, like if our parents are into music, which not everyone's parents are like super like that with it, but like you start there and then you just branch off and you know, being like, like me personally, like knocking on the door at 30, like looking back on like the type of music I listen to and the way I think about things and being like, cause like last night I just went on this huge, they might be giants kick. I'm not sure if you're like familiar. Ooh, absolutely, okay. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. Like, like I was, they were the first concert I saw by myself, like mm -hmm. without my parents. Like I went with a whole bunch of friends in college. They were touring uh, their album, join us. And mm -hmm. like, I've like, I got that from, and like, I think the first time I heard of They Might Be Giant song was on Tiny Toon Adventures when they played Istanbul, not Constantinople. And mm -hmm. like, that didn't come from my parents. That came from me just being like, huh, I like this group. Let me find out what's going on with them. Yeah. And then they did, um, they did a song with the Homestar Runner people. And then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm all in now. Like, yeah. so like, you go from, you go from like, They Might Be Giants to, Lupe to Trina to three six to yeah. fucking like I was really big on death clock at high school like and and just like I don't know music yeah. is just super dope and it's great to always it's great to see the connection there you know yeah. like and I will say like um visibility stuff aside I really am somebody that still gets as excited about hearing new music and new albums as I think I don't think you can write about music and not be weird. Like, yeah, no, you, you gotta be a weirdo. You gotta be sitting in your room, listening to shit obsessively and like wanting to hear the samples. Like it's, it's just required for the thing. Um, and that was really- If you wanna do it well anyway. Right, yeah, you gotta be a little, which is wild. Cause like the pivot to like writer influencer, I'm just like, y'all, I have, I have anxiety. Like, it's just actually not gonna work for me. <laughs> I can't do it. Right. Um, but yeah, that still feels really core to me. And as we were talking about that, it made me think about 
like a lot of my time on Tumblr merged with some friends I made in high school. Um, uh, there's like two twins. They're both um, in my library class, Brenda and I'm for, oh, Brenda and Carla. I'm going to send this to them when it comes out. Um, yeah. But they put me onto Arctic Monkeys so hard Ooh. in high school. And it is still like, yeah, Arctic Monkeys is like, it really led me down this rabbit hole of rock that feels really home to me. Um, and it really merged with like the MGM, like Tumblr, um, Vampire Weekend era that I was already in. Right, right. Like, Horchata was like, that was that was a jam um so yeah I'm just thinking about like what what happens when you when you find that discovery again um and just embracing the fact that like a lot of our musical interests are really just like a collage of shit that we gather from from other places yeah and it's important to acknowledge that and yeah like since you're bringing up friends I wanted to bring up my friend Indigo who put me on to a whole bunch of music uh in high school as well like she put me on to this band Digitalism that mm -hmm. um Oh, wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. The band's not called Digitalism. I think I just fucked up. Hang on. Let me see. Shit. The, uh, I think their album is called Digitalism. No, just kidding. No, 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 no. I lied. The band is called Digitalism. Okay. Um, <laughs> I fucked. But, 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 but yeah, like, you know, like I was like, like, I, like, I feel like uh, it's just always super dope to acknowledge the people who like, who like introduced you to things and just like consider how their listening habits affected you and like and just like considering like all the different people I was talking to about gorillas at the time and like mm -hmm. she also put me on to like like she was the reason I really got into Foo Fighters as well Ooh, she yeah. um um uh I forget the album I can see the cover in my head but just like you know like between her and my boy Spencer and my boy Solomon like just like so many different people played such a huge role in putting me on to all different kinds of music and like that's like that informs who we are and it's always important yeah. to acknowledge that so shout out to y'all I love y'all do you remember um zunes yeah <laughs> I, I never I never owned a zune but I remember zunes <laughs> okay my um because I was thinking about because I think sometimes as writers we kind of get pegged on certain artists that we cover pretty frequently um like, I feel like I've pretty clearly been somebody that's covered Hayley Williams pretty extensively, no name. Um, but I originally, and I always want to, like, still do this, is, like, um, Earl Sweatshirt. Yeah, um, man. Like, that's my, that's the core of my standum. Um, and I was, I was saying that to say, I was thinking about what I was doing the first time I heard Odd Feature, and specifically the first time I heard Earl. And there was just a shift in how I understood rap because it felt a lot more connected to how I understood like writing. Like it was like inclusive, a little braggadocious and really on the edge. Um, and yeah, Earl is like always somebody that I still want to go back to. Um, and yeah, he's definitely one of those like, if he puts out something, I'm going to listen to it. Yeah, same. He's a generational talent. I've yeah. covered him a lot too. So yeah. like, that's, yeah, like he's, he's, he's one of my favorites out right now. And he always will be. I've been waiting for an album forever, <laughs> but. um, Dude is done locked his hair. Thought he had a kid. He didn't have a kid. Somebody else had a kid. But No, he did have a kid. He confirmed it. He had a kid. What? Yeah. Things I'm talking about. 
yeah no he was tweeting about his son like last week and just said like it like he said something like nah like y'all don't like like don't come to my song with any weirdo energy i'm gonna slap hot fire out of whoever like he's yeah Um, yeah tobe is one of those artists that um i remember the first time i heard him and i was like yeah this is this is it for me Um, and he also was just so important to like my high school years and early college i had an internship in charlotte where i went to his earl world tour Ooh, fun yeah and i think like one of my first pictures on instagram i met him and i met taco and i was oh my goodness you couldn't tell me shit we look like children like we both look very tiny (laughs) (laughs) but it's uh yeah he's, he's definitely one of those artists that i'm like yeah i remember where i was when i heard it that's incredible yeah man wow like yeah like er, yeah and yeah like earl is somebody whose music has really stayed with me over the course of the last decade too like his like the first mixtape is kind of really hard to listen to in a lot of ways but like just the talent on display was just like he really just had it and uh he still has it he's just a lot more blunt and direct about what he's doing now he's not he's not he's not as concerned with like showing you how he can like pull a scheme off he just wants to like get these words off and like feel better and i appreciate that like that's (laughs) like that's like that's the kind of growth i can really get behind Mm -hmm. like that's like that's good growth you know yeah Yeah. and i think as i got older i the breaking apart of odd future made more sense to me and i think also having been somebody who was like in a toxic friend group and then it splintered it makes so much more sense now oh wow yeah like you you have to outgrow people and like the things that stick stick right like earl's connection with sid sticks right but not every relationship has to sustain itself and also like i remember when they broke up there was always these like um what happened was there this and now that i'm older i'm just like this was inevitable right like we don't get sid and the internet without this splintering um and if somebody was like, would you rather have our future stick around or have these amazing artists covering every genre? Like, I, yeah, I wouldn't ask for anything different, especially because it's what they needed as kids that needed to grow their own relationships in their own fucking time, you know? Right. Yeah, because, yeah, because like the internet specifically, like they had started when Odd Future was still a thing, but like, I don't know that we would have gotten hive mind if they if they were in the same place they were when they made purple naked ladies we wouldn't have gotten feel good we wouldn't have gotten uh ego death or hive mind or any of the solo projects like you know like they needed they they needed to move on everybody did like tyler you know you know like i don't know if we would have gotten call me if you get lost if they were still together we wouldn't have gotten uh haji's solo album that no one talks about fire uh, Mm -hmm. um, uh, fireplace which is amazing no one talks about that album um and we wouldn't have gotten like, you know, like Damo deserves more respect, but we wouldn't have gotten all the great music he's made, you know, like they all needed to move on and that's fine. You yeah. know, like maybe at some point they're gonna come together again and give us like a reunion tour, maybe, I, I, I don't know. But like, you know, they, some, yeah, like sometimes we just need to separate and go find ourselves before Literally. we can just like, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. and I even think about like, um, how critical Frank was to like songwriting in that era. Like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I know all the words to Oldie, like every verse. Um, <laughs> I remember where I was when I heard Oldie for the first time, but Same. yeah, like Frank's legacy of just what he does 
isn't possible with him staying in that pocket. And he was much older than everybody, more established at that time. He was really like, hey, this is what a deal looks like. This is what I need to be doing. But right. And yeah. he had already and he had already been writing songs for people. Like, I think he had written for Neo and Beyonce at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. So he was definitely like on his way out, but yeah, it just, it, Odd Future is definitely one of those groups where I'm like, I'm really glad y'all did not listen to the advice of the internet. I'm really glad y'all did what y'all needed to do. Yeah. yeah, and I'm really glad they like grew up in a lot of those ways. Cause like, you know, you know, like to hear, to hear Tyler on Call Me If You Get Lost say like, oh, like I don't even like using the word bitch. It's like, he wouldn't have said that. And like the kid who made Yonkers wouldn't have said that. Right. Like, it's, <laughs> it's also wild. Cause I think about how little coverage Sid got in the group. Mm -hmm. Like she was really just like the DJ. Like, and even in like the Nardwar videos, like she doesn't talk. She's, I mean, deeply reclusive, deeply extroverted, very similar to right. Earl. Like they were like pretty against media. Um, right. And they still are in a lot of ways. But I mean, to, to think that that type of genius from Sid was always there. Yeah, because like she was engineering a lot of that music. Like she wasn't, yeah. she wasn't just a DJ. Like she was doing so much behind the scenes and she just like didn't I, I like I don't know if she didn't want to put it out there but she just like wasn't you know like it's you know like it's like you said she wasn't doing like a bunch of media and yeah. a, and like what, and what media she was doing was her having to field being a queer woman running yeah. with people who were perceived to be homophobes you know like she yeah. would, it was always the same questions so like how does it feel to be the, like you know like yeah yeah and I think that's always the I mean something that happens in queer community often is like um, I'm sure internally they were having conversations about the fact that Tyler was bisexual, that Steve Lacey's bi, like, these oh, are that they're probably, and I think my favorite thing about Oldie is, like, Frank says that he's bi in the verse, um, and you see Earl and Frank, Earl and Tyler both be like, you, you know what this is about, um, <laughs> but yeah, but you also have them being very publicly homophobic, um, and how that is all a very, like, clear defense mechanism, so. Yeah, I think about that often of like when you're the the out person in the group and everybody else isn't, then you become the focal point of like, how do you feel about this? Whereas internally you're like, these niggas are not straight, but sure, let's <laughs> let's go with that. Right. Yeah, you know, and yeah, and then like when like especially, man, we're really going off on a whole tangent about our future right now. And then the whole and then the whole flower boy thing, like when yeah. like like when Tyler officially came out like people, you know, people didn't believe it. And it's because, and, and like a lot of that has to do with like Tyler's whole persona at that point, just like being like the, like, like he was all, like he was always on in that way where you like people had a hard time telling yeah. like, like it, like it's two things. There are people who could never tell what was real and what wasn't. And then there are people who were just in like severe denial about the fact that this guy they like was gay, like, or bisexual, you know, like it's, like it was it was a lot to unpack for a lot of people but to see it but but like to see Tyler kind of come into his own and stop to see him come into his own and stop feeling the need to like shock people with mm -hmm. that shit like it's like just seeing his evolution has been pretty wild it's been kind of controversial and weird and strange but it's like the kid who was make like the kid who made bastard is not the is not the same guy who made call me if you get lost like 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 yeah. if you told me when bastard first came out that he would make an album like igor i'd be like whoa what like it, it would make yeah. some kind of sense but not to the point where i where i'd be like yeah i completely buy that yeah. like 
because like you can see the small parts like you can see some of like the you can see some of that bastard era in there but it's not a lot of it you know like and it's really just in terms of the music but anyway i'm <laughs> like i could sit here and talk about of all day and clearly you can too so like shout out to earl because earl's the best yeah always he he could sneeze on on a track and i'd, I'd listen to it honestly yeah people people were too hard on east i like east the beat is fine y'all need to relax <laughs> it's cool yeah um before we move on to this section where i wanted to ask you about a handful of your pieces um i feel like you kind of touched on this earlier but um how often so like how often does your work as a community organizer inform the work you do as a writer and vice versa because i feel like that's a pretty interesting relationship yeah I'd say it just depends on what I'm writing about. Um, honestly, like sometimes I put on different hats. Sometimes I'm wearing the same one. Sometimes they're different. So like, honestly, when I'm doing like music coverage, I really just am using the po political analysis I have as an organizer to help me better understand music um, and put it in context most often. Because mm -hmm. I think that is something that with music, you know, it's easy to get a fluffy feature piece. It's easy to get a fluffy review, but um, that political context is something I've always admired and like some of my favorite music writers. So um, it lends me well to have that political education for that. Um, for more like hard hitting news stories, that analysis is still needed. I do have to really check where I end and the story begins. Um, so I saw that a lot with the Alexis Crawford piece, just because um, I was in school at the same time as her. So I saw her on campus and also I wanted to just report the piece properly. So I think often I am really finding a clear, like a balancing act between them both, but more often than not, I'm really just using certain skills from one part and putting it into another. So like the use of language and sentence structure that comes with music writing is so beneficial to reporting because reporting can be so just bland and boring. So it's kind of a, a back and forth most times. Definitely, yeah. Like, yeah, like I feel I feel like all the best writing, regardless of whether it's reporting or criticism mm -hmm. or an op-ed, like, like, like that balance, that balance really brings out the best in anything that any of us do because, um, I mean, like, 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 forget the fact that you want, like, forget the fact of wanting to attract, like, as many people to your shit as you want. It's just like, it just makes for better writing if you can, like, be personable, but also kind of, like, hold it down, like, formally. And uh, that's something that I feel like every writer, regardless of where they are, like, really struggles with, or, 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 or like, not struggles with, but, like, grapples with, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of part of the job, so... Mm -hmm. I also feel like I, there was a point when I was doing a lot of op-eds and I started to catch myself in this like identity coverage that I didn't really enjoy that much. And that's, it's something that like is bread and butter for a lot of writers and journalists who are like, this is my identity. I'm writing an op-ed on why I think this is bad. Um, and op-ed writing is cool and I don't doubt it, but one, the visibility shit will really eat that up. And to that type of identity writing didn't feel as, one, it's, it's hard to take that type of op-ed writing into 
investigative reporting. Like people yeah. just, when they look at your clips and they see that you've written all op-eds, it's hard for them to take you seriously as an investigative reporter, a reporter, which is bullshit. But it was also something where I just wanted to know this skill of how to report without my identity involved. Um, and really just like, what, what analysis do I have that can better this reporting? Um, and yeah, I also just saw how quickly a lot of folks who did a lot of identity writing were like, you know, really getting castigated for it. We're really like becoming the thing to be consumed. Right. And which is a point where I was like, I, I'm not built for that. I can't really, I'm not built for that type of uh, world. Yeah, it gets to be a lot after a while. And like, you want to be, and you know, like you want to be able to write about and cover other things without needing to be like the black voice on blank or the queer voice on blank or the female voice on blank, you know, like that's like, like that's like, that's part of the reason why I'm happy I moved in the direction that I have too, because there was a time where I was like really in that zone. And I was like, I don't need to have an opinion on this stuff right now. Like there are other people who could cover this better than I can. And I'm gonna just stick to, I'm gonna just stick to like fitting game and anime quotes in pitchfork reviews, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I don't need my opinion on everything to be heard. Um, and also like, I, there's also just this very intense, like essayist to book pipeline that like becomes like you put out a book of your own essays on your opinions and like, yeah, I don't want that either. I don't I want, feel, I feel you. Yeah. I don't want my entire work to be centered on me and what I think of the world without, yeah, taking the time to like shut up and listen and write about other things. Totally. Yeah. Nah. So, you know, speaking of all of that, I wanted to talk to you about a handful of pieces that you've written over the course of your career that I really connected with. Um, and I feel like a great place to start is your piece on the 2017 XXL freshman cover, especially considering that the new one just dropped. Um, so like, so like seeing, so like, I feel like, I feel like that moment, I feel like that 2017 moment was kind of like a watershed moment for a lot of us when it came to the freshman list because of like, it almost feels like that was the point where people started caring less about it. Like, like I would say either that year or the year that uh, um, Uzi 21 and all of them, like, like those two years were like, okay, things are starting to change for what mm -hmm. this means. So like, so like talk to me about like the headspace you were in when you wrote that piece and like what really inspired you to go in on it like that. <laughs> yeah, oof. I'm trying to remember where I was in the world. Oh yeah, so I had just moved to Atlanta by myself, 2017. Um, ooh, that was also the year that Control came out. Yep, yep. <laughs> and really, when I tell you, I really got into my bag around covering women in hip hop with control because I, I feel like you remember like there was there was this thread going around of women that wrote on control it was like me I don't think I wrote on control I don't remember I think I did Oof, time but like Donna wrote on it um another person at DJ Booth wrote on it um uh, but there was this really great list of folks that wrote on that album that I was like that's that's where I'm trying to be um but when I wrote on this XXL cover I was more or less coming from a place of one really a lot of identity about like what was going on in the world and hip-hop and also feeling like something that felt really critical to me growing up 
was losing its grip um, and not really knowing how to say that. And I'm looking at it because I literally have not read it in a long time. Um, but yeah, I end it being like, why isn't Princess Noki on here? No name, McJenkins. Um, and I realize now that those artists would never be on this XXL cover just because you have to be a certain type of industry artist to be on this list ever. Um, right. And Princess Noki is becoming that, but No Name and Mick would never. No. Like even say yes to this. Um, it's yeah, also, I, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. You, no, no, you finish. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, it's also just a list that comes with a certain set of expectations about the artist you wanna be. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like they're, there are certain bot accounts that are actually dedicated to saying like how often does XXL get this right? Um, it's not a great, it's not a great shooting average, right? Like I'm thinking it's like maybe they're really half and half on artists that make it and artists that don't. Um, and the ones that don't are like really ones that disappear. Yeah. So, like I'm thinking about like Hobson, OJ the Juice Man, like there have been some real falters that at the time felt like the edgy choice. Um, and yeah, I think that was just a piece where I was like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this institution that I think is falling apart. Um, and yeah, I don't think it gets any better. Year by yeah. year. <laughs> and like, and like, first of all, it's, it, it's crazy. You bring them two up because I always liked OJ the juice man more than I liked Hobson. Like, <laughs> Hobson was always garbage to me. I never really, I never really fucked the movement at all. Like it, re like it really felt like everything. Like, like Hobson to me was like what everyone who hated OF at the time thought OF was. Like he was basic. He is basically that. Yeah. And like, um, it's just sad because both he and Juice Man have kind like, like the last time I heard people talk about Juice Man was uh when that clip of um from from uh, Hip Hop Uncovered with um his manager. Mm -hmm. uh like went around but then before that it was when his song was featured in atlanta mm -hmm. and like nobody really talks about juice man like that anymore yeah. and it's also it's also worth noting that a lot of artists turned down the freshman list too yeah. like tyler tyler and earl both turned down the freshman list um there's a bunch of others too but like they're the two i always remember like yeah because it, it says something about the artist you want to be yeah and i think who says yes you know tells us something but i think yeah, if we could get that list of no's. I've always been like, I think my very selfish thing is like, I have a few artists that I still wish could have made it. Like Cardi's never been on the XXL list. Um, I want a young and May on the XXL list so bad. Same, I'm so surprised she wasn't on that shit. I feel like she's, I feel like somebody knows. I feel like she said no before. Like that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um. So people who people who have denied the list, uh, Drake denied the list, Rocky denied the list, Nicki Minaj denied the list, um, McConan, uh, Post Malone, uh, a lot of people, like the Malone. Yeah, there's some people on here that are surprising, but yeah, um, I was gonna say if somebody, I would I would think Post would take it, but if his team was like, we're bigger than this list, then yeah, that's, right, that's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, before we move on, like, you know, like looking at the, like the fact that the 2021 list is still like kind of chugging right now. Yeah. Um, like it's been four years since, since this piece, like, how do you like, 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 where do you feel 
like do you feel the same way you did in you do you feel the same way you did now that you did in 2017 basically yeah I think I feel differently I'm not as invested in the XXL list as I was in 2017 like in 2017 I was like this was the I was like trying to express my frustration with why I felt like the list wasn't doing what it needed to do now it's just not it's not my it's not the center of my world. Like when it comes out, it like causes a little ruffle and then it disappears. But um, I think if anything now, I'm always like, uh, I see the list, I'll wait till the freestyles come out to like make a decision. Um, and that normally tells me what I need to know about like certain artists. Like, um, yeah, a lot of people were upset that like Ruby Rose is on the list. Um, Ruby Rose has been rapping for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she started out as a video girl but she's been rapping for a minute um lakia a 20 year old i think she went oh, to Montana. shout out to shout out to lakia oh, bro she's my gosh. amazing son wow um, <laughs> and my friend uh who i went to school with sean p um he produced three songs on her album so i like a personal connection because i like i like heard him make his like producer tag in college and now i hear it on her album so I'm like, that's incredible wow shout out to him um sean p is a genius. He also um, produced two songs on City Girls' album, too. He's, like, a Miami legend. Um, Out here, son. Yeah, but, like, I'm I'm always more invested in the women on the list than everybody else. I listened to 42 Doug um, and 2C and Pusha T, so that was there, but if anything, I'm just, like, passively checking it out, and it's not. I don't have strong feelings about it anymore. Same. And, and I feel like a lot of people don't. That's why I bring that up. Like, yeah. like people used to get, like, angry about it. And now it happens and people kind of talk about it a little bit and then it just goes, which is kind of a shame because they've been getting better about getting artists who are like not already mega superstars. And that was a problem for a couple of years. And now they're kind of like, they're kind of like, you know, like Moray was on it and like, and, and like he, and like, he's big, but he's not like a superstar yet. He will be, but like, he's being like, like people like him and Lakia and Pusheisty are like really good examples of artists who like had big moments, but haven't crossed over to like Drake status or Kendrick status or Cole status. Like, like there's an awareness there that like, it just kind of feels like it's too little too late to me. <laughs> and you know, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um, so another piece I wanted to talk about is um, uh, the piece you wrote about why black student organizers are the future and the present and the past. Because I think I think uh, I think acknowledging that history is incredibly important, especially for people who are who have no context about like why about why black organizers and black protesters are in the streets doing what they do. So talk to me about putting that piece together. Yeah, um, also from a really long time ago. Um, yeah. I think the reason I think the reason why I wrote that piece was one because on campus I was seeing black students who weren't organizers and who were really leading the conversation of like what what they need and also like what their communities need um, that I again just wasn't seeing in coverage which was really frustrating Um, and it's kind of easy to like knock off college organizers as like y'all are just students Um, but I will say the one time I will give a compliment to Spelman and Morehouse is it really nurtures you to sit and have conversation with other black folks about the state of the world and like argue about it. Um, I, some of my like favorite moments were we had a political conversation on Brown Street, which is like right in the middle of Morehouse's campus um, Mm -hmm. the day after Trump was elected. 
Um, yeah, it was a rough one, but it was probably one of my favorite moments on campus of really getting into the weasel people about like, what are the next four years going to look like for Black people? Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the things we mentioned in that conversation ended up coming to pass. And it was a lot of Black folks, Black cis men particularly being like, you know, you don't know, this is why we need to vote. Um, and a lot of us as organizers, and I'll say hot-headed on both sides, were really just like going back and forth on like, would the material conditions of Black people change if they voted? Because we've done that, right? And like, people yeah. are still getting evicted. People are still going without food and childcare. So yeah, what what is voting doing for the system? And how is it not doing anything for us? Um, and I still really stand by those arguments. Maybe not like, you know, me trying to fight multiple niggas on campus probably wasn't. Right. <laughs> um, but those niggas deserve it. I still hate them. Um, okay. But yeah, probably not going about it in that way politically. Um, but yeah, that piece was really nurtured from how can I map and make clear the fact that some of the sharpest analysis I'm getting, one, is from my own family, but also from people I'm in school with who um, are looking at the world with very strong criticism and whose voices need to be heard. Right. And that's so important, especially considering that like there's so many different, like there's so many different ways to act for change like people always love to throw voting out there as the one big one and like a it's one part of a big arsenal and b yeah, yeah like a like a it's a it's a part of a swiss army knife that's like not the big it's not even the biggest part b you got to vote local more than anything yeah. because that's really what that's really what's going to affect you if, if you're going to do it you know like i can't even blame people who aren't going to vote anymore at this point but like you know, like there's just so much other shit to do and so many other ways to get active and so many other ways to make noise, you know, like, and yeah, I think you, uh, I just really think that you brought all of that to attention in a really, like, I remember when that piece came out and I read it and I was like, damn, like this is, there weren't very many people on platforms talking about things like that in the way you did. And I really appreciated that. So yeah, of course. And then moving on a bit more to something else that's kind of, well, actually, no, it, is, it isn't in the same vein at all. It's, um, I wanted to talk about um, your piece on No Name and the policing of Black women in music. Um, the, yeah. one that, the one you wrote for DJ Booth, which is like, oh yeah, like, you, you know, like, especially considering that you went from the B minus for telephone to, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know, like, so, so yeah, like, talk to me about, like, that was a really, that, that was a really big moment in, her career and really just like the conversation around like black women and rap in general. So talk to me about that moment and what was going on with you there. Yeah. Um, oof, 2019, a rough one. Might as well have been 10 years ago, son. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, yeah, I think it, it was a rough one for me personally, politically, a lot was going on. And I also kind of have this feeling kind of coming out of 2020 that 2019 was like my year of, I was like ignoring all the signs that things in my personal life were going bad. And then 2020 came and it was like, well, Clarissa, you have no choice but to face them now. Um, right. But this piece is important because it was on the heels of me talking about Oh yeah, um, 
on, on the heels of December of 2019. And I had like been publicly doxxed by Sean King top of 2019. So it was like coming up, coming up on a year of that. And also me sitting with like a year of going from like a person talking about shit on the internet with 5,000 followers to by the end of 2019 being at like 30,000. Yeah. Um, and like, I just was really struggling to understand that visibility. And I still do. Cause it's still something that like, I think I don't talk about publicly very much, but like that visibility from going from 5k to like 30,000 rattled my personal life. I'm sure like, it did. Like, I could not have relationships, friendships, romantic relationships without it coming up. Um, I lost a job over it. Like, yeah, it really actually destroyed my life. And this piece was critical to me, one, understanding what I owed myself as a Black woman um, and what I could fight for. And I think with this piece, I'm talking about um, going to a no-name show where basically it was actually the night of getting doxxed because I had already bought the ticket. Mm. And my partner was like, you know, I was like, I literally can't get out of this bed because I'm so, I'm shaking. Because um, I couldn't use my phone because like I was getting death threats. Um, but I was like, I'm gonna go to this show because I was like, I need to do something that is not about this. Um, and I saw Yo at that show, um, of course. And Yo was like, as, the, as soon as I saw this dude in the corner, he was like, Clarissa, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> And this is Yo's general, and because Yo is such a chill person, like he really does not understand visibility. He understands it, but like he has never been on the bad side of it when you're a black woman who like has to face the brunt of the world telling you that you should really die. Um, and he was just like, what the fuck is going on? What do you need from me? And I will say Yo has been like someone in my camp who was always like, I don't care what's happening. What do you need? Right? Like really like, what do you need from me? How can I show up and protect you? Um, and so we stayed at the show and there was a part where all the white people that show up for these shows um, was like, do this song. And Fatima was just like, no, <laughs> I, I'm not doing that. This is my show, right. I have a set list. <laughs> I'm clearly drinking some Hennessy. No, I'm not doing that song. Um, and it was a very small thing, but it was like so critical to me understanding that like I deserved boundaries. Um, that me as a black woman could say no to people and could really be like, fuck you. I, I don't have to do what you want me to do. Um, and so, yeah, this, I'm forgetting when song 31 came out. Gosh, there's so many different ones. Um, but yeah, I go a little bit into Solange, um, talk about Taylor Crumpton's coverage of um, concerts and stuff. But I will say my favorite part about this was actually Donna's editing of this. Right. Like Donna really got in this piece and really works the magic. Um, Cause I, I was like, also like DMing Donna, like I'm really frazzled. Right. Cause I wrote this piece and I put so much on myself about it. I was like, I don't know if this is good, but I, I've sent you 1200 words. You do what you must from there. Right. Um, and so, yeah, Donna crafted it into some magic, which I really appreciate because her editing is like top tier, but mm -hmm, totally. Yeah, and then to get that response from No Name about it felt really good. I didn't have like a personal relationship with her at that point, and it was before the book club started. Um, right. It was so, like right before the book club started. Wow, I yeah. didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, right before. Um, 
And then I did the Atlanta first book club here in the city. Um, but yeah, it was like, it, it was definitely that time where I was like, okay, how can I hold, it was, it was definitely the first piece where I was like, okay, I can hold this visibility at bay when I can't control what I put out. And that felt really important to me to like see that piece do well and to also see folks be like, there's an analysis that um, we haven't gotten from other pieces. And I, yeah, really appreciated that feedback. Right, yeah, that was, that was, that was such a time for you, for the industry, for, for no name, for, for everyone. And like that, 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 that was really, yeah, like you, yeah, like I can totally understand you feeling the need to like show and prove to yourself more than to anyone. Cause there was just a, like, that was, yeah. Wow. It, like, it really feels like it was so long ago, but that shit was only two years ago. Like yeah. so much has happened in the last two years, but like, that was like, that was, um, you really did that. Like the piece came out, the key, the piece came out great. And, you know, like now you're where you're at and, um, you know, Fatima is where she's at and mm -hmm. that's really tight. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, the biggest part of that is like, one, really letting time do its thing, like really letting time heal you on the time you need to be at. And also like taking, uh, taking autonomy over your life, regardless of people like it is like, probably one of the scariest parts of being a black woman on the internet yeah wow i can i can i can only imagine and i think that's a perfect segue into uh the uh, into one of the latest things you just dropped which is the piece about felicia rashad and um bill cosby with everything that happened with cosby and her being her being a dean at howard like so you know like this you know this only happened like not even two three weeks ago so yeah. like so 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 like how did that come together and like what um what really like considering your kind of iffy relationship with writing in general like now like what drove you to be like I gotta write about this? Yeah, I mean I have like a dream list of publications that I've always wanted to write for. Um, the Cut absolutely is one of those. Um, they do great work over was, there for real. Yeah, um, Lindsay Peoples Wagner is out of this world. Like out of this world um the fact that she emailed me is like when i when i got the email on my phone i was like I back. um <laughs> i was really trying but i've been trying to write for the cut for a minute there were a few things i've pitched that i wasn't able to finish um or it got out of the news cycle um i originally was supposed to write a piece about sean king for the cut and i just emailed the editor and was just like yeah this shit is actually still too raw for me um Cause yeah, there's only so many times you can like publicly go up against your abuser. And as I've gotten further away from it, I'm just like, I, I just have, yeah, I, I wanna maintain that piece in my life. Um, but this felt really close to home because something that has been really crucial to me and something that I'm still working on is working on a book about sexual violence at HBCUs. Um, mm. So this felt perfect to like get into that and also going to Spelman, there's a building called the Cosby Building, um, named after his wife, but under the $20 million he gave Spelman. So um, yeah, I felt like I had all the connecting points to really talk about this and to also really talk about the reality of HBCUs. Um, I think especially after 2020, we've seen a huge increase in students applying to HBCUs. And I don't think I'm trying to like kill those dreams, but I think it's it would be an untruth if I didn't tell Black people that 
these institutions are not perfect. Right. You know, like nowhere we go is not going to have anti-Black violence or anti-Black state violence. So um, that is really what this piece is about. And also really what I'm hoping the book is about is to be honest with folks that like the only way to get rid of places that put us in harm's way is to dismantle things that are founded on white supremacy, right? That are founded on beliefs and systems that are meant to like exploit and harm us. Um, and that means like, yeah, really thinking critically about things that we love deeply, the Cosby legacy, HBCUs, um, because those things are also still benefiting from our silence and our exploitation. Totally. And I feel like, uh, I feel like the Cosby legacy is like, I don't want to say it's been ruined, but it's just, it's just in a much different place now than it was 10 years ago. Like, even when people were like, it was kind of like an open secret, people would joke about what he did. And then, you know, and then the Hannibal Burris thing happened and it like really, really got kicked into overdrive. And like, you know, these are just important things to consider, like, regardless of where you want to go with it. Like, you, like, especially if you want to go to a HBCU. Like, it's like, these are just things that we have to think about. And that's, and, and like, that's part of the reason why I feel like, cause like, this isn't even necessarily a piece of criticism. It's more just like you just like writing about it and kind of putting things into context. Like, you know, like, I feel like when it comes, like, whether it's criticism or something like this, I feel like what gets lost in translation a lot is that people are like, oh, like you're talking about, you talking about this in this way means that you're condemning this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's not yeah. necessarily, and that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, but mm-hmm. like, you know, like, especially for things we love, you have to be willing to, you have to be willing to acknowledge the things that are wrong with it, you yeah. know, like regardless of how big or small they may be. And I think this piece does that extremely well because, you know, like Felicia Rashad was wilding, like straight up. like <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And also I think the funniest part about that is even though Howard put out a statement and separated themselves from her, um, Politically, she still works there. And also, Howard is the HBCU with some of the worst Title IX violations. Like, exactly. And, and, yeah, it, and you go into that a bit, too. Like, hey. yeah, totally. So it's, it's just funny that they will put out a statement talking about they prioritize survivors when, like, numbers of people that have multiple cases of sexual violence on their campus graduated with no problem. With no problem. And this is this something that you know, happens at every HBCU, um, maybe a little bit less at smaller ones, which is what I'm hoping to get into the book about more is like the difference between the, the different types of HBCUs, but having gone to Spelman and Morehouse, like I can name more people who've assaulted people that have graduated with no issue than survivors mm-hmm. graduated. I, I know many more survivors of Spelman and Morehouse that dropped out, if anything else. Um, right. And that type of dichotomy feels like something that one shouldn't be happening like there should just be resources for folks to get through school and also we see it intercommunally in black communities all the time right like we make really clear decisions on who we show up for and who we don't um and i think as somebody who grew up in the family i did most oftentimes those aren't black women those aren't black queer people those aren't black trans people um and yeah, if, if my little piece of writing can get folks closer to seeing that, then that feels important to me. Um, and I think very like terrifyingly enough about this piece is that when you write about sexual violence, there's this flood of people that start telling you their stories. 
And that's always a thing I have to brace myself for. Um, and I really am thankful to Know Your Nine, which was the organizing, the organization I was a part of as a student um, that prepared me for that. Like they give you trainings on like, when people report, you have to like emotionally prepare yourself for that and separate yourself because um, thinking about all that is just too much. Um, and that is the brunt of being a journalist, being an organizer that are very similar in the same of holding all these people's stories. It's just too much of a weight, right? Like you can't, you can't expect your piece to like solve the issues of the world. And you just have to be really clear and concrete about what it needs to do. Because if you think of all of it, I would never turn in copy. Yeah, right. Your, your brain's just going to explode. Like, yeah. That's that's such a delicate balance that I don't like I can't fully imagine it. But like, man, it's just like, yeah, like especially it's just, man. It's too much. That's what I'm saying. 2021, it's no analysis, just bye. Yeah, no analysis, just vibes. Tired of thinking, it all hurts. And see, you know, and and, and like to bring this all full circle. Of course, you you interview um you interview the Golden Boy Omavi for Rolling Stone, <laughs> which is just like first off, shout out to Mavi. That's that's my that's my guy. He's he's incredible. He's been incredible, and I'm so happy that I'm so happy that a that he got this look, and b that it was you to do it, considering that you're both from the Carolinas. So yeah. like, so talk to me about, yeah. So like, this is the last one. So like, talk to me about, um, talk to me about the Mavi piece and like working with him and just like what it means for you two to be, for you two as, as Carolinians to be on the platform you are on with that. Yeah, I will say part of this is actually inspired by you and Yo. Cause I feel like I learned about Yo's music when I was in Charlotte, but- you Learned about Mavi's music, you mean? Yeah, sorry about <laughs> that was <music>. cool. <laughs> if Yo has music, oh my gosh, that would be too much. Keeping this from us, but um, I really saw y'all's coverage of Mavi's music um, through DJ Booth. That really got me interested in him, um, and really started to listen to Let the Sun Talk um, within the past couple of years. I think I feel like I DM'd you at some point, and I was like, "Was it you or Yo?" I think it was Yo, but I was like, yeah. one of y'all. I was like. I'm, I'm gonna get this Mavi interview. Um, and I think it was maybe two years ago and I DM'd Mavi and I was like, I'm, I'm gonna get an interview. I don't know where, but it's gonna happen. Um, and then I had DM'd Jeffy Haza about writing for them on a fluke because I like to be risky. And he replied and I was like, damn it, now I gotta do it. Um, <laughs> per usual, that I did the good fuck. Um, but that piece felt so important. One, because there's so many, like, the world is just too small, right? Like, me and Mavi are both from Charlotte, um, both Libras, both go dumb hard for Bojangles. Um, <laughs> and the beauty of the interview was that we realized we grew up in different parts of the city, but at the same time, um, and even like my coverage of Ivy Soul, who's also from Charlotte, we realized we actually went to Myers Park have lived, I think maybe the same year at some point. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're not quite sure if we were like, but we were on campus at the same time at some point in Charlotte um, and didn't know. And then I also realized that, um, yeah, Mavi's friend groups were also like, Mavi went to Philip O'Berry. All of my family lives on the west side of Charlotte. So 
yeah, like there were actually just too many connections um, for all of us. And Mobby's music is just, it's just good, right? And he does a type of storytelling that really resonates with me. Also kind of being like a kid of the like Earl legacy. Um, it, was an, it was an easy decision to interview him. Um, I will say talking to him in the interview was fun just because he's just too smart. He's just too smart. He's definitely one of those, like, um, by the time we ended the call, I was like, wow. One, Mavi is like so optimistic about the world. And he definitely feels like a spirit that was put on this earth to tell stories and also to just think deeply about who he is as a person. Um, and it just felt really aligned to interview him. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it as somebody from Charlotte. Um, and also I think something that I'm thinking about a bit more thinking about like Christina Lee and Regina Bradley is like, there are a lot of Southern cities that just don't have hip hop archives. Right. Um, and that's something that gets lost a lot. And I tried to illuminate that in the piece is that like Charlotte is not the city in North Carolina that you go to for hip hop, right? It's Fayetteville, it's Greensboro, um, it's Raleigh. Cause those are places that have one really large art centers, really large young communities. Greensboro has a bunch of colleges, but Charlotte is like a corporate conservative city. Um, and Charlotte has a really long like legacy of policing. Um, and me and Mavi talked about this a little bit of the artists that were coming up when we were in Charlotte were De Niro and uh, Baby. And right. they were both getting run out of venues all the time in Charlotte. Like I've been to, my, my favorite show is um, a De Niro show where he's like in front of like a bunch of white folks and his family's there and his family hops on stage and like does this whole like set with him. But wow. yeah, like De Niro and Baby were over police in Charlotte and they weren't even as popping as they are now. So it is just hard. Charlotte really does a good job of deciding what type of artist it wants in the city. And it's never rappers. Mm -hmm. Never rappers, never rappers that talk about the reality of the city. It's painters, it's people who do murals, right? All the gentrification shit. But um, we just, me and Mavi really rapped about like, what does it mean to be from Charlotte? And what does it mean to like build that archive? Um, and so that, that piece felt like a first stepping stone to doing that. Um, because yeah, there's just a lot of cities like that don't have that. Like Memphis is growing theirs with 36. Um, I'm hoping to do that in Charlotte. Um, I know Taylor's doing that in Dallas, but yeah, it's just hard to really make sure your city doesn't forget that there's always been hip hop here, um, especially in places that have really done its best to like wipe that history. Totally. Like, yeah, that's just really important consider considering the fact that hip hop keeps continues getting older and is, and like is still not shown a lot of respect in the same way that other genres at this point in their lifespans have been um like you know you even see it in places like new york with like all the drill artists like and, and like not even just drill artists like pretty much like anybody who doesn't like cross over into some sort of superstar shit yeah. faces some sort of opposition from the hip-hop police out here yeah. like e even considering everything that happened at rolling loud before pop smoke passed away like it's just you know, like you, like you can just tell that most places are geared against rappers in some way, shape or form. 
and yeah. that really bums me out like you know like like it bums me out to consider that pop smoke didn't even get to play a show in new york before he died like what the fuck kind of shit is that yeah and i was like, thinking about um that vice package about hip-hop coverage that came out i think andre wrote that piece mm-hmm. about yeah yeah oh my god andre's piece on chicago joe top tier um and even like polo g a few weeks ago like got arrested in miami yep at his birthday party and like the fact that we know that these certain cities actually have a registry of artists that they're just gonna lock up as soon as they touch down at an airport um really says that you know you can be the baby you can be migos you can be all these things but at the end of the day like if pd wants to lock you up they'll do that and it's part of the reason why the baby isn't in charlotte as much because CMPD has arrested him at this point like four times. Yeah. We're just hosting charity events. So yeah, it's 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 definitely um hard to do that when you're not in a city like LA or New York where you just don't have the infrastructure to like make sure the hip hop pieces like stay together. Totally. Yeah. Nah, it's 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 very different for places that aren't that don't have that like established archive. I yeah, definitely want to make that clear. Like <laughs> um and yeah, and yeah, like the baby in particular, it's he's 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 very complicated because his he's been all over the place just with like how how he acts towards people and how aggressive he can be and the fact that he the fact that he the fact that he's punched multiple women in the face and nobody really seems to give a shit about that and then everything that happened with the kids and the money yesterday like he's and and he's a meme now like all the white kids love him like he's like he's the fucking like he's the fucking like I turn into a convertible and like the fucking weird video like he's a meme now yeah, like yeah. it's so his his trajectory over the course of the last like two years has been really fucking strange. Like he's a really big star and people love him and he's putting on and he's putting on for North Carolina, but he's like, people also are kind of like tired of him in certain spots too. It's, I, it's, it's really strange. It's, I'm still trying to process it. Yeah. And I I think like maybe last year I was like, I want like a a cover story with him. and then after the violence stuff he's been doing, I was like, mm, maybe not. Um, but I think probably less about him and more just about like the one, how he started out. Like he was really going to radio stations in diapers. Right. Yeah. He, 2013. Like This is when he was baby Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, was, right. been, I, I remember going to his show as baby Jesus. It was rough. <laughs> going to his shows as him, baby Jesus. It was rough in Charlotte, but he is a man of antics right he like is a man who grew up on west charlotte where like he is fine with doing whatever he needs to do as long as he knows that he's staying true to what he thinks to be correct um and and like if anything i think the biggest thing about the baby is like he knows at the end of the day he can out rap anybody right which can't be denied but also west charlotte is not a place of ethics in the way that you need to have to be a hip hop superstar. Um, And I think that type of like geopolitical analysis of like things that like, I wanna do if I interviewed him, but I also know he reminds me a lot of my cousins. And I'd probably be like, you're getting on my fucking nerves, right? Like he'd probably (laughs) flirt with me or some shit and I'd be like, this isn't gonna work for me, right? We're we're from the same side of town. You're not gonna bullshit me. And yeah, I, I don't find his antics interesting. I don't find his, violence towards women interesting. Um, I see him as an artist that is, you know, very much like an athlete. He knows how to do a skill very well. 
but am I invested in the glitz and glamour of who his team is making him to be? Not as much, um, because it doesn't tell me anything about him as an artist or who he is as a person. And I think that's often where I'm like, even the songs he put out recently about his brother passing felt like really a lot of breaks in that character where I'm like, I'm not getting the antics. I'm getting this piece about how like your brother committed suicide and I don't even need the trauma, but I do need some like genuine something. And it's hard to right. get that with him. Um, so I'm hoping he goes more that route of being genuine and being vulnerable, but he's also a cishead nigga from West Charlotte. So I don't know how we can get that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, like it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to feel like he's in that space when he's, you know, like filming himself giving fucking kids $2 for candy when he's wearing a fucking Balenciaga sweater. And it's like, bro, like, come on. Like, this, is, this is what? This is the same dude that worked at Bojangles like 10 years ago. Like, I'm like, just like, come on. <laughs> you're, you're not fooling me, right? Like, you're not fooling me that you were this like phil- philanthropic yeah person like, like yeah I, i'm i'm interested on like a profile that really not even drags him but really is honest about like how do you hold somebody who doesn't deserve to be over policed by cmpd and also somebody who's caused a lot of harm to black women right and yeah. a superstar, right mm-hmm. with, with honesty how do you hold that um and i don't know what that profile would look like um i don't know if i'd be able to write that because i don't you know i'm definitely not someone who could write that piece and have his team be happy with it right exactly you know like you know like when you like uh, you saying that reminded me of uh the piece that charles who used to work over at rolling stone shout out to charles he uh, he, um he he profiled little baby yeah. and that piece wasn't a hundred percent positive he like like I, I actually really admired the uh the guts it took for him to really like not turn it into to not turn it into head you know like he because he really could have but like there was there was a lot of shit covered in there about him as an artist about him as a person and you know like it wasn't it wasn't like a takedown piece or anything but it was it hit that balance that we've been talking about of like talking about him and how his music how great his music can be but also kind of talking about giving some criticisms and talking about him as a person and like showing it was a it was a full package type of thing and right. i think and i think at this point in his career considering what's happening with the baby considering how popular he still is mm-hmm. like maybe more than ever honestly like right. regardless of what twitter wants to tell you he's still pop people love yeah. the baby so like i think i think he deserves some or, or deserves might might be the right word but i think i think we all would benefit from something like that and yeah. i think you could probably do that if somebody's willing to let you I think you could do that <laughs> I don't think I, I've I've said I, I was in a clubhouse room where um I think it's Eric Caldwell or somebody was like if I if I hear about a baby cover story I'm definitely putting your name in for it um and I think I would be able to do it with the understanding from an editor that like this is gonna be what I experienced to be right of course right and having having that leniency is important because also like I feel like people don't know this as much, but like cover stories are not, you know, unbiased things. Right. Like there is an investment in a PR state in an artist being on the cover. Of course. Right. And I think a lot of people be like, oh my God, you got a cover. But like a lot of like, you're not getting hard hitting criticism on a cover. You, you, not, you actually can't. 
right yeah not usually at least like. yeah not usually i mean it depends on if it's like a certain publication like the source xxl used to do that but right. yeah it's rare nowadays to get a a cover that is actually balanced and fair um and yeah if it team wants a cover and they ask me to do it i'm, I'm not giving you fluff right now we expect nothing less <laughs> And I got one more question for you yeah. just about like this whole, this whole everything. <laughs> like, like, I don't know if there's any way for me to like really bring this entire point together, but like, so, so at this point in hip hop's life, um, women and femmes and queer people and non-binary folks are, they've kind of been like dominating the rap landscape for mm -hmm. a little while. Like, that isn't to that isn't to say that there's more of an acceptance, even though I like in some ways there kind of are, but like there's there's still plenty of opposition, like just to just to people like existing. Like look at you know like look at like Lil Nas X and everything that's happened with No Name and everything that's happened with just like I I, I could sit here and list names all day, but I'm not gonna do that. So you know like just just to kind of um like I, I just feel like there's still so much progress to be made in terms of representation and general acceptance when it comes to this so you know like I guess my last question for you is where do you like where do you feel where do you feel we're at with that considering mm -hmm. the fact that considering the fact that uh so many women and so many queer folks are like in this are like at the top of the industry in a way they, that, that, that they necessarily haven't been before, at least in terms of like exposure. And I guess yeah. in terms of sales too, but like, but like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna ask you anything too weighty and like put all this on you or anything crazy, but like, where do you feel, where do you feel the dynamic is in that sense right now? And like, how do you think that we as rap fans can kind of make that better? I know that's like a really heavy loaded question, <laughs> but I mean, it's not as heavy or as loaded as the, I mean, the no name talk, uh, just because like, they were like, give us your top five. We're starting in five minutes. And I was like, oh, <laughs> God. I was like, I need time to think about that. Um, I think that question actually like, and we, we talk about it at the no name thing too, is like, more about like what the industry says it wants to be, right? So like in this current time, I think we are seeing not only women dominating rap, but like leading the best rap that we have currently. Um, and we are still seeing like the industry not show up for them, right? And kind of replicate certain aesthetics that yeah aren't always I don't want to say authentic but I'm thinking more specifically of like the, the complaints I hear from I'll say mostly men but like it's, it's a wide range of people about hip-hop is like all the women rappers look like strippers all of them talk about the same things they just shake ass um and I don't think that's actually the fault of the artist I think that says something about the industry right you get one idea of femininity and it just replicates itself on multiple artists um, in a way that is not authentic to who they are. Um, like Mulatto did not grow up doing sex work at all. Right. She grew up very middle-class. <laughs> um, <laughs> so to see that imagery of sex work replicated on her is interesting because she did not grow up like that. Um, but I think that says a lot more about the industry and what it sees as top selling um, currently. So I think in order for like 
how do we become better consumers of hip hop? I think we have to think more about like, what type of artistry do we want? Um, and what is the industry selling to me? Um, and I think that shows up more in the patterns of anything um, of who's popping and who's not. I was thinking a lot about how like hip hop was not something I was going to in the pandemic. Mm. Like I was really actually listening to a lot of R&B. Um, I say pretty often like Kiana Lede's album. I ran that so much during the pandemic because R&B has just felt more raw and open to vulnerability than hip hop has recently. Yeah, um, I get that. I get that. Yeah. And I, I will say, like, I also just wasn't going to it just because, like, you know, emotion I was going through a lot and hip hop just wasn't a place I wanted to be at. Right. Yeah, but, of course. Yeah. But I think we, I think with women in the game and queer folks in the game, I'm always just like, yeah, I, I have less critique for them unless they're causing harm to people um, because there is just so little space for them to be wide ranging. Um, and I think as a consumer, I do think a lot more about like, what artists am I not listening to that I think are making music that resonates more with my, I don't want to say political growth, but like, yeah, I just have different tastes than I did five years ago. Um, right. And I just try to be more honest about my consumption than anything else, right? Like if I'm listening to club music, I'm listening to club music. I just want to throw some ass and chill. I don't need it to be like a deep analysis on like, third wave feminism I just like to be close right um and I think that's a lot more honest than being like why do all women in rap shake their ass right yeah and, and it's just like today right right and it's just like who cares you know like if you don't want to hear that then don't listen to it I think I, I like I think a big part of that also has to do with like what people are listening to because it's like oh well, like this is all people are doing it's like well this is what people are listening to so if you don't want to hear that go listen to what you want to hear and and like not even in the sense that like you know like I don't say that to say that like oh like if if people if people don't listen to this and it's going to go away forever it's just like there is this there is a certain type of music out there for you and even even if it's not being pushed in your face and like I know like mu music discovery is really hard like regardless of how accessible it is today it's hard but like yeah but but like there are women somewhere like like for everybody complaining about what Meg and Cardi B and what like and, and what like Lotto and the City Girls are doing like mm -hmm. and it, it just like stop putting all of that on Rhapsody like mm -hmm. anybody listening like stop that stop putting all that shit on Rhapsody like they're and, like um... Uh, like, we talked about that in the thing people were like trying to do this like respectability thing where they were like missy doesn't talk about this and they're like yeah and it's like i don't think you're listening to missy correctly exactly uh, <laughs> like what like how, like how could you listen to superfly and not hear any of that like no idea but i mean that's just more about like fat phobia and colorism than anything right like, absolutely when, when you're a far like a fat dark skin black woman like people are just not um seeing you as a sexual being but right, right. um yeah, I think I also think like when, when I hear that critique of like all women doing rap and shake ass, I talk about money. I'm just like, yeah, that, that's a reflection of the industry of what sells. And also it tells me that like, yeah, folks want a binary of like good women in rap and bad women in rap. And that's not the way I'm listening to music. So if that's what folks want to do, that's fine. But like, yeah, that binary of good and bad, 
one doesn't serve us in the real world ever Mm -mm. Um, and two it doesn't serve hip-hop because black women are not you know good or bad they are just telling their stories how they need to um and yeah and being sexual when they want to because chica no name are also talking about sex right yeah like not doing it in the aesthetic way that the industry says is the most profitable but they're still also talking about sex right you know and 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 yeah and like like, that's another thing like pretty much every pretty much every woman in rap because i'm not yeah, like like pretty much any woman in rap is yeah. talking about sex in some way, shape, or form. Rhapsody's talked about sex, you know, like 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 e- right, like everyone talks about everything, you know, and like and just like the more the more we're willing to be accepting of like everyone talking about things the way they feel they need to be talked about, like the easier it's going to be for you to find stuff that you like. First mm-hmm. of all. And second of all, you know, like people you pe- the people you want to see succeed are are going to succeed more if you listen to their shit, you know, I, I, like and just like who fucking cares? Like let people talk about what they want to talk about as long as they're not doing harm to anybody or anything wild. Like, you know, like, you know, like sometimes we want to hear about shaking ass. Sometimes we want to sometimes we want to hear a dissertation, mm-hmm. you know, like but like it's not always like we change things yeah. change and just like shut up and let them cook. That's all yeah. I got. Yeah. Yo, that's all I got. I don't have any more questions. Cla- Clarissa, yo, oh, this was great. Thank you so much. Wow. Yes. Oh my goodness. We went through, I mean, just, I'm sure editing this is going to be a time. We went through so many topics. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just like, damn, I know this is going to be a tough one to do on the back end, but I had such a good time. I really get to talk about TV shows and music. So, Thank you so much for, yeah, asking me about that. And yeah, centering that in your work. It's, yeah, really critical to the stuff that we do. Right. Yeah. No, this is important because we all have these experiences and I appreciate that because like, I feel like people in our position don't really get the chance to talk about this stuff. And it's like really important to the way that we perceive the world and the way we put our work together and just the way that like people live their lives. So the fact that you even agreed to come on, like I really don't take, like considering how busy you are, I don't take that for granted. So like, thank you so much. Like for real, this was. Um, I'm definitely gonna take this new realization about why women dying in narration to therapy. I'm definitely gonna be like, cause as we were talking, I was like, damn. Well, another time. Um, <laughs> Thanks for listening. Shout out to y'all for making it this far. And shout out to all the black people listening too. Cause y'all really impeccable. Don't forget to like, subscribe and tell a friend to come through next time. One.